0: Welcome to the Agency in Focus, Navy, sponsored by Lidos. The Navy dates back to the days of the Continental Congress. Its long history has a lot to offer both the public and Latter-day Sailors. Safeguarding all of the knowledge and related artifacts falls to the Naval History and Heritage Command. I'm Tom Temin. In this next half hour, join me as I walk through the command and its mission with its director, retired Rear Admiral Sam Cox.
1: Naval History and Heritage Command is considered an Echelon II command. Uh, which means on paper we're at the same level as the commander of the Pacific Fleet and the naval forces in Europe and Central Command. Obviously, those commands are run by uh, four-star and are much larger, but organizationally, I report to the same boss as they do, which is the chief of naval operations. Uh, For administrative purposes, we report to the director of the Navy staff, who is an immediate subordinate of the uh, Chief of Naval Operations. So on paper, we're, we're high up in the organizational chart, but we're a much smaller organization than those other commands.
0: And it probably is obvious, or maybe not so obvious, but what is the mission of the History and Heritage Command?
1: Well, the mission is to preserve and present an accurate history of the United States Navy uh, for a variety of purposes and to as broad an audience as we can possibly reach, uh, we pass on, in particular, lessons learned uh, from operations in the past via using our operational archives and, and the historians that that work here, uh, so that the Navy can avoid making, you know, similar mistakes that might have been made in the past. Um, we also by the work we do can provide examples of of inspiration and good leadership to uh, sailors in the fleet today and and in the future. Uh, And also it's important that the the Navy needs to have the support of the American people uh, because if you don't have that support you won't have the support of Congress uh, and we won't have the, the budget that the Navy needs in order to protect the country in the future. Uh, so it's very important that as a Naval History and Heritage Command, we connect with senior Navy leadership, the sailors in the fleet, and the American public.
0: If there is something to be learned from a naval operation, say, for that could inform future troops, future operations, who decides what gets recorded, how it gets written up, and how does it get then inculcated into future doctrine, say, or future operational plans?
1: Well, a lot of that depends... What time period we're talking about i mean there were there were periods where the Navy did this better than than at other times uh but generally, we have professional historians here. we also have reserve detachments of of active not active duty but but reserve officers who, during times of crisis or war, will be activated and go out to commands that are engaged in operations uh and will collect documents collect. Uh, information, sit in on key decision meetings, and, and that material will be captured uh, and then brought back and and uh, in, in some cases may be analyzed very quickly and others may go into the archives and may or may not be valuable sometime in the future, but, but might very well be. Uh, an example would be uh, lessons learned from riverine operations during Vietnam. Uh, after Vietnam, the Navy disestablished its riverine capability, uh, only to discover in Iraq that with the Tigris-Euphrates, th- there was a need for riverine operations. So we were able to go back into the lessons learned from Vietnam, resurrect them, provide them to uh, the operating forces, which which significantly impacted tactics and procedures for. Uh, doing riverine operations in combat, and we believe actually contributed to saving lives uh, by doing that.
0: And I imagine, say, the incident in the Gulf of Aden in Yemen when a ship of the, I believe it was the Seventh Fleet, had the hole blown in and sailors were lost. Would that be another example of where, how did that happen? What was the stance? What could we have learned from that? Could be baked into how the Navy operates in the
1: future? Uh, Certainly, yes. And and you will also find that you, you can go into... Uh, for example, the archives and pull out uh, reports on damage to uh, ships in the past, uh, in some cases quite old, uh, that is actually useful for learning lessons for how to uh, construct ships nowadays, how to you know do organizations and and things like that to try to uh, try to improve our capability.
0: We're speaking with retired Rear Admiral Sam Cox, director of the Naval History and Heritage Command. And let's talk about the operational side. You've got a lot of uh, people out doing archaeology as well as running displays, museums, libraries. How does that all happen?
1: Well, we have several major lines of effort. Uh, one is, is to to write the history, you know, the official histories of the United States Navy. Uh, we have an operational archive uh, in which we preserve Uh, the documents uh, so that you can later on write the the histories, which also are available for outside researchers so that they can write histories of of the United States Navy. Uh, We have the Navy Department Library, uh, which dates to 1800 and is a very great reference source for the rest of the Navy. Uh, We also have a collections division. Uh, they're responsible for the acquisition and care of about, you know, 500,000 artifacts uh, representing the history of the United States Navy. Everything from ships' bells to uh, plaques and, and uh, nameplates and things that have come off of, of ships in the past. Uh, they are also responsible for the Navy's combat art collection. Uh, which, before the advent of photography, you know that was how you would capture visually uh, historical records. So you know, it's not just a bunch of still lifes or anything. it's It's historically valuable uh, paintings, drawings, and things like that. They also have the underwater Archaeology uh, division, which is responsible for understanding where our ships have been sunk and what the conditions are. Uh, because all those ships are, that, you know, that's the Navy's Arlington National Cemetery or our Gettysburg. You know, those are those are hallowed sites uh, that in many cases are, are war graves. So we take special care in, in trying to make sure that those wrecks are not molested in any way. So that's a significant part of uh, the work there.
0: Retired Navy Rear Admiral Sam Cox is director of the Naval History and Heritage Command. After this short break, Cox elaborates on the scope of the command. I'm Tom Tenen.
2: Lidos has proudly supported the U.S. Navy for nearly 50 years with systems and solutions that span from seafloor to cyberspace. We're advancing global missions with agile, innovative IT and providing cyber expertise built for resilience and rapid response to ever-evolving threats. Our team brings commercial best practices and leading-edge technologies matched with a deep understanding of the defense sector's most complex challenges. At Lidos, we're developing practical answers for a complicated world. Visit leidos.com seafloor to learn how.
0: Welcome back to our interview with retired Navy Rear Admiral Sam Cox, Director of the Naval History and Heritage Command. In this segment, Cox describes the command's museums and how the spoken word becomes part of the Navy's history.
1: We have 10 museums in the U.S. Navy's official system. Most of them are relatively small, but the Naval Aviation Museum in Pensacola is the third largest aviation museum in the United States. Uh, but they're scattered around the country. Most are specifically towards a particular warfare area, the Aviation Museum or the Submarine Force Museum in New London. And in New London, we have the decommissioned nuclear submarine, the Nautilus, which was the first nuclear-powered vessel in the world uh, that is open for you know public tours. And I'm also responsible for maintaining the USS Constitution, which is still in commission, but is a 240-year-old sailing frigate. Uh, of which the maintenance is, you know, pretty intense. Not, not surprisingly. And there's
0: even a couple of pieces of it left that are still original.
1: Uh, a few, yeah. You, know, you could argue she's mostly a reconstruction, but uh, she's she's in better shape today than she has been since she was first launched in the late 1790s. And the other thing, uh, we have about 1,100 uh, display aircraft uh, that are in museums uh, around the world, but you know, around the country or. If you go to, say, for example, O'Hare Field, there's a World War II Navy fighter, Wildcat, that's on display there. That's actually on loan from us, uh, recovered from the bottom of Lake Michigan back in the 1990s. Uh, but it's it's a pretty uh, diverse and, and wide-ranging, you know, operations. I got about 14 locations around the, the country that that we do our work.
0: And to what extent do interviews or oral histories come into the historical preservation. Let's go back to the Riverine example. There might be some people left from Vietnam era, they're getting long in tooth at this point in history, but that might remember the Riverine operations and be able to offer in-person advice. Does that get baked into this also?
1: Uh, It it certainly does. Uh, We do have an active uh, oral history program, uh, it tends to focus on you know senior navy leaders as they're you know heading out the door to try to capture or retiring you know when 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 they're leaving the service and we try to capture their particular uh experiences and and you know what what lessons they want to pass on to to those that follow uh but there are times when for specific uh research projects uh we may we may try to hunt down a veteran that that has specific knowledge of, of some event that uh, that we want to know more about because the, there's a need for it now.
0: Somebody might have been, say, below deck that could see things that perhaps the captain did not see with respect to how a ship performed or what the effect of a detonation might have been.
1: Well, that that's true, and in fact, in in our our library, uh, we collect uh, you know the personal recollections of. Uh, all kinds of people, to to be honest, because, you know, in many cases, the official accounts, I mean, they're the official accounts, Uh, and some sailor's diary may actually give you uh, insights uh, about what really happened that, that, you know, may have not made it into or to to the level of, of, uh, you know, an official document. Uh, so in many cases, the, the diaries and journals and, and things like that, we collect those, we we save them, uh, we try to keep track of where other collections are around the country in case, because you know, we we you know we do have limits on how much we can keep in store, uh, but we like to know where these things are so they they do in fact become valuable in many cases.
0: And I wanted to just ask you a little bit more about the ships that are sunk. There's thousands of them, I guess. You you list 17,000 airplanes and ships that have gone down. How do you make sure that they are protected, not used by scuba divers for fun? Is it better to tell people where they are and say, stay away, or do you try to keep it secret?
1: Great question. Uh, it varies extensively based on where the ship is, how deep it is, how long ago uh, it went down. Um as a general rule, we we don't like to give out the exact coordinates uh, unless we're working with uh, someone who we, we know to be responsible uh, with capability. For example, we worked with uh, the Vulcan Group, uh, which was the group that former uh, Paul Allen, uh, it was his ship that went out and found the, uh, the U.S. Indianapolis, which was sunk at the very end of World War II. Uh, we worked with them because we had actually, through our own research, uh, revised where the actual location of the sinking was, which differed from the original official Navy you know, position. Uh, and by sharing that, that helped them actually find the, the wreck of the ship for the first time. Uh, we don't encourage uh, people to dive on, on Navy wrecks uh, because, one, we consider them hallowed sites. Two, they're often uh, accompanied with unexploded ordnance and and other dangers. Uh, In some cases, there may actually be a national security uh, issue involved with what may or may not be on board a ship. Uh, However, under the Sunken Military Craft Act, it's perfectly legal for anyone to go down and look at a Navy wreck as long as there's no intent to disturb it. Uh, if they do intend to disturb it for legitimate educational research reasons which are rare uh, we would consider it and issue a permit to do that uh, and although we don't encourage diving for for those uh, responsible sport divers in many ways that's the best way we have of understanding what the condition of the wreck is or whether anyone else is disturbing it is if uh, you know responsible sport divers give us that information.
0: Retired Navy Rear Admiral Sam Cox, Director of the Naval History and Heritage Command. After this short break, Cox discusses the monumental task of preserving maps, engravings, books, even early World War II color motion pictures. I'm Tom Temin.
2: Lidos has proudly supported the U.S. Navy for nearly 50 years with systems and solutions that span from seafloor to cyberspace. We're advancing global missions with agile, innovative IT and providing cyber expertise built for resilience and rapid response to ever-evolving threats. Our team brings commercial best practices and leading-edge technologies matched with a deep understanding of the defense sector's most complex challenges. At Leidos, we're developing practical answers for a complicated world. Visit leidos.com slash seafloor to learn how.
0: Welcome back to our interview with retired Navy Rear Admiral Sam Cox, Director of the Naval History and Heritage Command. In this final segment, he talks about the task of document preservation and the larger need for the public to know the Navy and its history.
1: Even regular documents and archives, everything is infected with mold. Uh, it's a question of whether it blooms uh, or not. And if you don't have the right environmental conditions, you risk uh, having a mold bloom, which will cost you large amounts of money to remediate. Uh, but certainly things like uh, film in particular, microfilm, you know, we're discovering that, that that was not a really good idea for long-term preservation of, of what's on it. Uh, Not only for the material, but you discover that. Well, where's your microfiche reader uh, stashed? You know, (laughs) and does it still work? Uh, So we do spend a lot of time, uh, and have made significant progress in in the last, you know, five six years in in improving the environmental conditions for the artifacts that that we hold and the documents that we hold. Uh, Because anything we bring on board, we're selective. We don't bring everything uh, but what we do bring aboard is with the understanding that we intend to preserve it for perpetuity uh, which which is a challenge but you know everything degrades over time it's just a question of how fast and and if you have the right environmental conditions you can delay that for a very long time uh, we don't have anything to the level that the, you know the Smithsonian moon suit collection has in terms of, of that environment but but we have made, you know, great strides, and we are able to, you know, preserve and protect uh, the documents and the artifacts that we have now.
0: Do you work with places like the Library of Congress or the Smithsonian or the Archives because they've got a lot of best practices in preservation and storage?
1: Oh, absolutely, yes.
0: Let's talk about the people that make up the Heritage Command. Is Everybody a former sailor? Do you have civilians? And what types of talents and skills are you
1: looking for? Oh, it's a pretty incredible, diverse group. The, the great majority of, of the command is civilians. Uh, the military are, constitute about 40 people. Uh, most of those are the crew of the, the Nautilus up in New London because that needs security and monitoring and, and continual maintenance of, of a ship. Uh, but within the headquarters and, and around the rest of the system, it's uh, historians, uh, archivists, librarians, curators, museum specialists, uh, archaeologists, uh, and then up in Boston, I have you know people who know how to work on a 200-year-old frigate. Uh, down in Pensacola, I have a union with with you know who know how to do uh, metal work on on restoring you know old aircraft. Uh, and then within the command, there's the the, the lawyer and the comptroller, and human capital, and and all those kinds of things that you need to actually run a command. Uh, but the you know the professional historians and archivists, uh, most of those are, are highly educated, uh, a minimum master's degree, many Ph.D.s. Uh, not all of them have military experience. You know, some do. Uh, many don't. Uh, there's, there's not a big demand in academia right now for PhDs in naval history, so finding people who can do that is, is a, a major challenge. And then once you get them, you want to hang on to them. Uh, but these folks are, are incredibly, incredibly skilled, incredibly well-educated, and, and the, the vast majority of them are incredibly committed and passionate about our mission.
0: We're speaking with retired Rear Admiral Sam Cox, director of the Naval History and Heritage Command, and it looks like a couple of your facilities are moving into new buildings. looks like you've got some construction going in the next couple of years.
1: That's correct. The Navy is investing in a new facility for us. It's actually rehabilitating a currently vacant uh, warehouse that would cost a significant amount of money to convert it to any purpose, uh, the the extra cost that that incurs by what we're doing is to bring it to the museum quality environmental standards. So uh, within this building, we'll go the the archives, the library, art collection, photo collection, rare book collection, all those things that require the the fine degree of of uh, control of, of the environment, air you know air temperature, humidity in particular, but also air quality and Rodents and pests and things, you know, all those kinds of things that that a state-of-the-art archive would have. Uh, this is actually the most significant uh, Navy investment in history infrastructure, probably since this headquarters was built in 1868 or whatever. Uh, so it, it's a big deal, and it's a and it's an indication that uh, you know the Navy leadership uh, values uh, what we do because there's intense competition for every dollar uh, in the navy today and certainly the, the navy's primary mission is to be prepared uh, to deter war or if necessary win war today which is a hugely expensive proposition uh, so we do what we do in history on a very austere budget but this new building is is a is a significant investment and and uh, Indicates the the value that the Navy is placing on its history.
0: And talk about some of the outreach activities that you do to the general public, to get them interested and knowledgeable about Navy and the Navy's history.
1: Well, we have a variety of of outreach efforts. Uh, in in particular, our social media uh, is is much much greater now than it was only three or four years ago. Uh, we have a large Facebook. Presence website that's been updated and modernized, Twitter, you know, uh, Instagram, all those kinds of things. We're actually engaged in that with the intent of telling the the Navy story to the American public and sailors in the fleet as well, and providing you know access to via the website to a lot of our artifacts and collections of books and documents and things like that, and. and Every day that goes by, we have more and more material that's that's available to a much broader, you know, audience. Uh, we do send uh, teams out to when we have the Navy has a, a Navy Week or a Fleet Week somewhere. We have uh, booths that are intended to uh, interact with the public uh, out there. Uh, within our, our library and archives, we do uh, they are open to people who actually have you know some credible uh, academic uh, or, or authors, researchers, things like that, uh, we, we can uh, uh, allow them to come in and, and work, with our, with work with other things. Uh, the museums uh, are also open to the public. In some cases, it's a little bit of a challenge because some of the museums are inside the security perimeter of Navy bases, so there's some extra hoops that people have to jump through to visit them. Uh, others are in locations where where the public can can easily access them, uh, and and those are uh, you know I think they're great places for people to go go visit, and learn about what their Navy has done for them, and and particularly what we try to focus on are the 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 sacrifice that sailors have made in the past to defend our freedom. Uh, sometimes that you know paying the ultimate price for that and. And at the root of my mission, you know, my number one obligation, from my view, is to make sure that the the memory of the sacrifice and valor of sailors who have served this country is not forgotten.
0: Retired Navy Rear Admiral Sam Cox, Director of the Naval History and Heritage Command. To hear this show again, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Agency and Focus. I'm Tom Tamman. Thank you for listening to
2: Agency in Focus, Navy, sponsored by Lightos on federalnewsnetwork.com and 1500 AM. The entire program can be found on demand at federalnewsnetwork.com. Search Agency in Focus.